The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence, a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. From Spirituality and Health Magazine, I'm Rabbi Rami, and this is Essential Conversations. Our guest today is Scott Shea, co-founder and chairman of Signature Bank, a longtime Jewish community activist, and the author of Getting Our Groove Back, How to Energize American Jewry. His new book is called In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. And that's really gonna be the focus of this conversation. Scott Shea, welcome to Essential Conversations. Rabbi Rami, thank you for having me. No, this is going to be great. I mean, you are welcome. I was looking forward to this. I've heard you interviewed before on, on this book. And, you know, you were gracious enough to appear on the show and send me a copy of the book. And I got to tell you, when the actual book arrived and I realized it runs well over 400 pages, I thought, oh, my goodness, how are we going to cover this book in 20 minutes? But then as I got into it, you made it really easy. I don't know if you had radio interviewers in mind, but you made it really easy by listing the four hopes you have for this book. So I'm going to just go through them so our listeners understand what your goals were. And then we'll go through these uh, one way or another and see what, you know, what we, we come up with. So the first goal was you'd like the reader to conclude that it is as rational to be a monotheist as to be an atheist. Yeah. Point. Yeah. So number two, <clears throat> the reader will come truly to understand the concept of idolatry. Number three, that the reader will get a newfound respect for religious texts, especially the Bible. And the fourth one is, and I'm quoting from you here, despite the rationality of both monotheism and atheism, readers will come to the conclusion that the existence of the God of the Bible, who is omnipresent, omnibenevolent, omnipotent, and listens to our prayers, is consistent with evidence available to us. And that's, I mean, they're all pretty controversial, actually, and, and I hope it's going to make for a good discussion. So those are the four things we're going to try to get through. And I want to start with just clarifying some things, especially with the first and the fourth. So the conclusion that it's as rational to be a monotheist as an atheist, and the notion that the biblical God, the omniscient, omnibenevolent, omnipotent, 
God who listens to our prayers is consistent with evidence available to us. So we're talking about the God of the Bible. Is, is that the God that we're talking about when we talk about monotheism, or am I making it too narrow? No, we're talking about the God of the Bible. And the reason that I had, that my first hope is that people will conclude that it is rational to believe, be, be a believer is that I've spoken on many campuses and students tell me, I've heard this so many times I can't count it, that they came to campus as a believer, but that their professors say to them, well, that's okay. You're still clinging to the superstitions of your parents, but don't worry, we'll educate you. We'll show you how it just makes no sense to believe in God. And frankly, I think that's a total, totally wrong-headed view of the Bible, of religion, and it, it depicts a, a gross misunderstanding of everything that Judaism, Christianity, and Islam teach. Yet, that's what, our, that's what, that's what so many students are hearing. And so let, let me jump in there. Verse. Now I'm a bit, little bit confused, because if we're talking about the God of the Bible, I'm assuming, and this, this may be my mistake, the Hebrew Bible, but you're including the New Testament and the Quran as if these were, this is the same God. You, you see it as the same deity? Well, I, what I did in my book is I, I do think there's only one God, and I think we might all address God in different ways. And so I made a point of interviewing six Christian leaders and two Islamic, Islamic religious leaders because I wanted to get their ideas about what it means to believe in a monotheistic God into the book. And I knew I'm Jewish. And I clearly come from a Jewish background. So while the book focuses primarily on the Hebrew scriptures, I wanted to, at a very base level, let folks from all monotheistic streams understand that we are ultimately praying to the same God, believing in the same God. And what does it mean to believe in one God? So I, I can see having a conversation because I do it all the time. Uh, I mean, I was a professor of comparative religion for 10 years. And so, so I get talking to pastors and priests and imams about monotheism. And I could certainly understand how they would all agree, rabbis, pastors, priests, and imams, that monotheism, monotheism is superior to henotheism and polytheism and atheism and, and whatever else. But maybe it's because where I live, which is in you know the Bible Belt in Tennessee, the God that my pastor and my pastor friends have, you know, has has a kid, <laughs> you know, the the Jewish God maybe has a daughter if you if you take Proverbs eight twenty two, meaning that you know where where uh, Chachma, Lady Wisdom, says she was the first of God's uh, creations, but uh, you know, the the, the God the Father without God the Son isn't God in Christianity, and yet God the Father with the Son isn't God in Judaism and certainly isn't God in Islam. So do you run into these things where theology matters? Or are you just saying, nah, let's just forget the theology, and it's just one God, and that's the only thing we have to care about? I start with just 
talking about how there's one God. I, I actually had spent countless hours with these with these leaders, and we really, I think, both in, in every conversation, both myself and my interlocutor, stayed away from specific theology and just tried to get to the notion of does it make sense to believe in God with all we know about science and the historicity of the Bible and our sense of modern morality? And does it make sense to believe in a personal God, a God who cares about us and thinks about us as individuals? And those are major requirements for any monotheistic belief. And yet so many people who I speak to have lost sight of that and have lost sight of what what the God of the Bible is. And I think at a very basic level, I try to reintroduce people to the God of the Bible because I found from my travels, which have now been relatively extensive on this book, that the less people know about the Bible, the less they like it. And uh, when, when, and so we, we, you mentioned one of my other hopes, and it was my uh, third hope. And I, I've been, I'll borrow the phrase evangelical on this, or the term evangelical, in terms of getting people to reacquaint themselves with the Bible in a serious sort of way, not in a fairy tale, storybook kind of way. But what does the Tower of Babel mean? What was it teaching us about technology? What uh, what does uh, Samson mean, and and what does the speech of Judah mean, and how does that have an impact on our daily or at least our lives from time to time? So this is and, very Jewish, <laughs> right? I don't yeah. I don't want to make this a Jewish conversation, but just the way you put it, asking what the Bible means is as opposed to what the Bible says. I mean, I don't know where you go when you're talking about this, but when I'm giving talks, I mean, number number one, I absolutely agree with you. The less people know about the Bible, the more they imagine what the Bible is, and of course, the less they like it. What I love about where I live is that people are, oh, just enamored with the Bible. Of course, they mean the the Hebrew Bible and the, the Greek New Testament, but they're enamored with the Bible. They love they read it all the time, but they they only ask, what does the Bible say? Or let me say only, they ask, what does the Bible say? Far more than what does the Bible mean? And I think, and I'll just get your take on this and then we'll get off the Jewish beast. But I think that Jews don't ask so much, what does the Bible say? Because we have the original text, talking about the Hebrew text. But we always ask, we've asked for thousands of years, what does it mean? And it means different things in different generations and different to different uh, readers. But it's always about what it means. And yes, people are fascinated when you can, just what you were saying, take a story like the Tower of Babel and say it's about technology. And, and I don't know where you're going to go with that, but the worship of technology as opposed to the worship of something that transcends technology. That... I mean, you don't get a standing ovation in churches, but that's close to getting a standing ovation. So do you see the same, I mean, I'm assuming you do, you, you see the same hunger for this, and I'm calling it Jewish reading of the text? Absolutely. And I, I've been in a number of, I've been in a number of churches and um, I think folks are very appreciative of, uh, of, of talking about the, the, the Hebrew scriptures in, in this sort of way. 
But I, I will tell you, and I, I live in the Northeast, and I've traveled actually most on this book to the Northeast, parts of the Midwest, particularly Chicago, and the West Coast, San Francisco, uh, the Bay Area. I've given, a, I've given a few talks there. And the thing that continues to, to, to surprise me in a certain kind of way is that I can't assume that people know any stories of the Bible. They may have heard of the Tower of Babel, in, but they don't really know what the story means. They certainly, I can't, I can't reference a story and just assume I can take it from there. Um, most people don't realize that in chapter 10 there were many peoples in many languages, and then in chapter 11 in the in the, in the Tower of Babel story somehow those many languages and many people became integrated into one. People don't get on the Tower of Babel story how what folks started to do was they created, they discovered a new technology, bricks and mortar, and then they intended to build a city. It was only later that they got co-opted in some way or determined to build this useless tower, which um, didn't serve their didn't serve any purpose. So, so let, you, you, let me ask you a question really about start from scratch. Yeah. Well, first of all, you're going to the wrong parts of the country because <laughs> you're right. New England. <laughs> well, I'm happy to come to the California. Invite me. Yeah. Yeah. Come anywhere, anywhere in the South, you know, that's where you're going to find people who go, Oh, of course I know the Tower of Babel story and they've got this whole thing about it, but they don't, they don't again, understand what the possible meanings are, but this is an off the wall question, but something I think you can answer. So when I'm looking at the Tower of Babel story and it's, and the, and the notion is technology and they start with multiple languages, they end up with one. Discover a new relationship and approach to life through the space between. Join spiritual teacher Brittany Mondito for a moment of silence a weekend workshop May 24th to 26th at Omega Institute's beautiful campus in Rhinebeck, New York. Everything we're searching for lies behind what we're running from, Brittany says. Reconnect with your inner sense of safety, grounding, and centeredness. Learn more today at eomega.org thrive. When I think about it in a contemporary context, what occurs to me and I, I realize this is stretching it, is that we have still, though we're losing languages almost as fast as we're losing other species, we're losing languages constantly. And what's happening is we're ending up with, with you know, maybe the language of math, you know, maybe it's code, you know, that, that's the, the, the becoming the singular language, the language of technology. We use metaphors for technology to refer to human beings. So we talk about, oh, I need some downtime or I, I, I'm trying to multitask. I mean, these are computer terms that we're applying to humans. The computers have won because the language that we all use, the singular language based on this new technology is, I don't know if I wanna go as far as you did about saying the tower is useless, but it's causing us to create a lot of things that are spiritually useless and that rob us of our humanity. And the last piece I'll say, because it'll introduce the notion of uh, uh, idolatry, is that it's leading us to make an idol not out of you know, clay and wood and, and the ancient gods, but idols out of, of the god of technology. Does that make well, any no, sense to you? 
Oh, yeah, there's no question. Look, in the Tower of Babel story, the, um, the, the, you know, we came onto one common platform, one common language from having many, and then we became subsumed in that, in that technology. We started out with some very useful things, bricks, mortar, the ability to build cities that didn't require stones. And then we took that as humanity in a very, very unfortunate direction, in a, in a, in a, in a direction that where the tower and the building of the tower became a tyrannical, idolatrous endeavor. And indeed, again, not to make this too Jewish, but we have a a Hebrew, a rabbinic tradition that if someone, if a brick fell while they were building the tower, people cried and mourned. But if a person fell, they didn't really care. They just put another person on the platform. And in that same way, we're finding that with technology today. And I do, I do think this was, this is a powerful story about the tyranny of all being on one platform. And there's a beauty uh, that humanity has of culturally being, of culturally having different streams, of not being controlled, if you will, by being on one platform. There's a tyranny to that. And I think people in, in Natalie are understanding there's a tyranny to the fact that everybody searches on Google. Everybody reads Facebook in the same Everybody uses Facebook in, in the same way. 82% of all advertising, digital advertising, is done in those two platforms. It can control us, and we can lose sight of how we got there. The Internet was great. Technology is great. But then we morph into directions that aren't necessarily so healthy, and, and unfortunately social media has taken us in those directions. So yeah. I am actually, um, I do think there's modern applicability to some of these stories. And mentioning Facebook, you know, Facebook has just come out with, or it's announced its own currency. And I don't know, I mean, you're co-founder of Signature Bank, and I don't know what to do with all the economics of this. But when I read that, that they're going to have I forget what they're calling it, but it's not Facebook Libra. bucks. Libra. Libra. So, so Libra. So they're coming out with their own cryptocurrency. I'm thinking, oh my God, that's it. If we're looking for the God who is going to rule, it's not the biblical God. It's, and it's, you know, I'm not saying Mark Zuckerberg is God or wants to be, but what's emerging out of Facebook is this all powerful or seemingly, but definitely, and omnipresent, not omnibenevolent, maybe coming soon omnipotent, but it doesn't listen to our prayers. It simply reads our data and, and sells it. So yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff in the Bible, in the Babel story that is applicable today. I, we gotta if shift gears. If I can gears. just mention one sure, thing real sure. quickly on that, because I yeah. think it's so important and so powerful. The Bible, one thing clear that comes through the Hebrew scriptures, clear as a bell, is the Bible hates monopolies, whether they're state or privately owned. The ancient Hebrew kingdom was definitely a divided government and had a legis- it had a king who was commander in chief, but he couldn't legislate because that was the Torah, that was the Bible. It had a separate Sanhedrin. It had a priestly uh, group that had its own revenue source, and of course it had the prophets who were the uh, the fourth estate. The, the Bible abhors these sorts of monopolies. And I think uh, coupling, and this is not I'm putting on my banker's hat, coupling a 
giving an entity that both understands all of our social uh, interactions, knows when we're happy and sad probably, (laughs) with a company that will also know how we're spending the money, I don't think there's any, any question in my mind that that's biblically prohibited. It should be legislated against. It's unsafe, and it is. And while it itself, as you say, is not idolatrous, it certainly has enough indicia of idolatry that if Mark Zuckerberg or someone else ever wanted to misuse it, wow, we could be going up some very dangerous tracks as society. Yeah, I I absolutely agree. And with the Libra thing, I thought that's the end. You know, that's that's the end of this. We we are coming up on the end of the time we have allotted, which is this went in a direction I didn't intend. We didn't cover everything. But I, I, I want to ask you one other question, just so so I'm clear. I mean, the God that that you're talking about is the God of your experience, I, I'm assuming, because it's not it's not the God of mine. I mean, yeah. anyone who reads my articles and uh, listens to me when I do seminars and things, I don't. I don't believe in a supernatural deity. I, I'm more of a panentheist. I'm, I'm on the Kabbalistic side, the mystic side of things. I, I don't think there's a God out there. I don't think there's an out there, but I don't think there's a God out there who's listening to our prayers. But you're, you have, besides what the Bible says, you experience God this way, or you're just telling us what the Bible says? No, I, 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 I personally experience God this way, and I, 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 I have to leave you with before we end with one story because it shaped a lot of my life my father as you i think you know is a holocaust was a holocaust survivor sadly passed away when he was liberated uh by the american army he weighed 60 pounds he had lost his entire family and somehow and we don't have time to to tell the story which (laughs) serves uh, a lot of its own podcasts um he ended up in chicago rebuilt a life, married, had a son, uh, me. And my father, when he went to synagogue, didn't pray, but he went to synagogue. And it took me a while to figure it out. My father was certain there was a God. There was certain he, that there was a God because some, the most minute, different, uh, different, different um, movements, even of a tree or of leaves on a tree would have meant that he would have been killed. He would have died. If he'd been liberated a, a week later, he would have been dead. But he was angry at God. And so people can have different relationships. He was angry at God because God didn't save his family. God somehow decided to save him. And I grew up in a certain kind of way with my father's, with my father's understanding that there's a God. I don't get what God does. Um, I worked very, very hard to try to figure out how to get myself in the place that God would want me to be. Um, and I feel that if I can get there, that I'll have a tailwind. But um, but I do believe in a personal God. I, I don't think you have to. In, in the book, I say the first five sections, you don't have to believe in a personal God to follow me for the first five sections. For the sixth section where I talk about prayer, then you have to get on the track or not of a personal God. And mm. I'm on that. I'm on that train track. Well, I tell you, I would love to talk to you for another hour about your track <laughs> and, and how we are on different ones. Uh, but uh, we can't, which is really unfortunate. But this has really been fascinating. 
thank you for having me and many blessings to you and to your family and to your listeners. And to you also. So let me let me just say so everyone knows who we're talking to that you've been listening to our conversation with Scott Shea. He's the author of In Good Faith, Questioning Religion and Atheism. You can learn more about Scott's work on his website, scottshea.com. Scott, again, thank you so much for talking with us on Essential Conversations. Thank you, Rabbi Rami. Support for this show comes from the International Yoga Festival, uniting yogis of every color, culture, and creed in a one-world yogic family. Come be a part of an expanding global consciousness by registering at internationalyogafestival.org slash register. Essential Conversations with Rabbi Rami is the bi-weekly podcast of Spirituality and Health magazine. If you like the show, I urge you to check out my new podcast, Conversations on the Edge, brought to you by the One River Foundation. Conversations on the Edge features a variety of iconoclasts, apostates, and free thinkers who are trying to change the world for the better. Also, please be sure to rate and review this podcast in iTunes or your preferred podcast platform. Essential Conversations is produced by Ezra Baker and our executive producer is Ben Nussbaum. I'm Rabbi Rami. Thanks for listening. Since 1977, Omega Institute in New York's beautiful Hudson Valley has hosted some of the best spiritual teachers and social visionaries sharing their messages of hope, healing, and transformation. On the Dropping In podcast hosted by Emmy Award-winning producer Callie Alpert, you will enjoy in-depth interviews and conversations with people like Pema Chodron, Jack Kornfield, John Kabat-Zinn, and many others on the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Also, check out the video series on Spotify. Spotify.